You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for all that you have given to us, for your presence with us now. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for your word to us today. Lord God, thank you that your word is living and active, that it is just as relevant today as it was when it was first written. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would give us ears to hear what you're saying, that you would give us hearts to respond to it. And I do ask, Lord Jesus, that you would keep me out of your way. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Rick Hutton. I'm the pastor for Student and Family Ministry. I'm glad to be with you on this beautiful Sunday morning. Over these past few weeks, as we've been gathering together, we've been in a new sermon series called Taste and See. And we've been looking at scripture passages that have the theme of food and feasting throughout them. And as we've looked at these passages, we've seen that the meals that God provides for us give us an opportunity to actually experience his goodness, to taste and see who he is, to know more about the kingdom that he is inaugurating here on earth, and to invite others to our own tables, but most importantly, to invite them to his table. And as we've been looking at these passages, we do have to acknowledge that um, what we eat and how we eat today is very different than it was a generation ago, and certainly different than it was when the scripture passages we were written, um, the way people ate at that time. But despite those differences, despite the way that we eat differently and what we eat is different than the people many, many hundreds and even thousands of years ago, there is still something universal about food and meals. It doesn't matter where you are on this planet, It doesn't matter when you are, if you can say something like that, food and meals play an important role in the life of humanity. And we can say that because it's true that meals are so important to all people, God reveals himself to us through them. But I think for us, as we think about God's provision of meals, I think we can say it's true that meals are so important to all people, because God reveals himself to us through them. And while God does reveal himself throughout the world and in so many different ways, including our meals, we most clearly see him revealing himself to us through scripture. And Tracy Meadows is going to read our scripture passage for us this morning. A reading from Isaiah, chapter 25, verses six through nine. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. And Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. 
Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I've looked at these scriptures over the past week, they have become some of my favorite verses in all of scripture. Uh, They are so profound in what they say. They are so beautiful in how they say it. They show us who God is. They show us what he desires for us, for his people. They show God's heart for those that he loves. And they show us character, a characteristic of God, that he is a generous God. And so as we reflect on these scriptures, I just want us to think about God's generosity, what keeps us from God's generosity, um, and what we do in response to the reality of God's generosity. So I did a very thorough bit of research uh, this week in preparation for this sermon. I quickly looked at Google to see who the most generous people in 2021 were. And my in-depth search brought me to a list of the top 10 uh, most generous people of last year. And in order to crack the top 10, your total donations and giving had to uh, be at least $480 million. I was this close. (laughs) Now, that is really remarkable for obviously very wealthy people to be able to give that kind of money. But the top four givers, they actually all gave over a billion dollars with the number one giver giving about $15 billion. From a worldly perspective, that is incredible generosity. And those people may be incredibly generous. We don't know percentage of their income and and all of that. But we look at what they gave. They are generous people. And when we think about what it would be to be that kind of person. Obviously, they need to have a lot of means. And because they do in our world, that also means that they have a lot of influence. They have a lot of power. They can make their will happen in a lot of ways around the world that we just can't do. Again, these people are exceptionally generous and have done good things with their money from a worldly perspective and even from a godly perspective. But as we think about generosity, To only do it from a worldly perspective misses out on what it really means to be generous. We need to look at godly generosity because God is generous beyond what we can possibly imagine. And I realize we're at church. You're listening to a sermon. Of course, I'm going to say God's generosity is greater than worldly generosity, even the person who gave $15 billion dollars. But let's try not to be cynical about this. That tends to be my default, maybe because I'm from New Jersey originally, but let's not be cynical about the fact that God's generosity is greater than any human generosity, and we're hearing about that at church. It is. God is more generous than we can imagine, than we can even fully know. A few weeks ago, we talked about meals being an opportunity to rest in God, to take a mini Sabbath every day, to take a pause. 
And in those things, we can remember God's goodness and that he gives us rest. When it comes to having a meal, we can also remember God's generosity to us. We can take a moment to think about all that he's given us. And we can do that even right now, although we may not have food in front of us. Maybe some of the younger ones here among us do have food, and that's great if it keeps them quiet. I'm just kidding. I have noisy children at church sometimes. I understand. But let's stop and think about God's generosity. God has given us everything that we have. God has given us a planet that is perfectly suited for us. He provides for our needs. He even provides pleasures for us. God has given us color. He's given us light and sound and air and the ability to hear, to appreciate things. He's given us the ability to touch and taste and be satisfied. We can enjoy meals, their flavors, the smells, and the community that comes from being together around them because God has given them to us from his generous hand. And God's generosity, while all those things are wonderful, but it's even more profound when we think about how great God is. God is so great. He didn't need to give us anything. He had everything that he needed as he existed before time. And yet he did create us. And yet he did give us all of these things. God's greatness is immeasurable. So much so that for him to even give us life is an act of great generosity. And while I've just said God's greatness is immeasurable, maybe this illustration um, can help us get a a bigger picture of just how great he is. Um, It's an illustration that I heard from a pastor who heard it from another pastor. And some of the confirmation students who are sitting here, I hope, uh, remember this illustration. But let's envision a scale model of our solar system, right? The distance in our real solar system between the Earth and the sun is about 93 and a half million miles. So let's imagine 93 and a half million miles is represented by the width of this sheet of paper, all right? For those of you just listening at home, you'll just have to imagine this. If this was 93 and a half million miles, the next closest star to us would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. All right, that's, that's pretty big. The diameter of our universe then would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. The universe is like a speck of dust on the fingernail of Jesus. That's how great God is. And so for him to consider us, to love us, to give us these things is beyond generosity that we can imagine. King David in Psalm 8 captured this when he wrote, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Our great God is exponentially greater than anyone or anything we can possibly conceive of or imagine. And it's in him and through his generous grace that he reaches out to us, that he gives us all that we could possibly need. God's generosity is great, and it does great things. And in our scriptures this morning, one of the great things that God's generosity does for us is that it gives us hope. If you look at chapter 25 in Isaiah, verses 6 through 9, the word will is used five times, as in God will do this. It speaks about God's plan for the future. 
And it's not just a, a wish where we sit there and go, I wish God would do this in the future so things would be better. It's actually expressing a certainty that God will do this, that what he promises will actually happen. He'll do it. This gives us assurance. It gives us a hope that can continue to drive us forward even when things are not going the way we hoped they would, when things are difficult, when we struggle, and when we deal with suffering. In these verses, God gives his people hope in the promise of what he'll do, and that is to provide a rich banquet for his people, including us, having the best food, the best drink available to all people. And as the Israelites would have heard these words, as they would have read these words, they would have immediately thought of what was called an enthronement banquet. This was a feast that a new king would put on when he would come into the throne to rule over his people. And what God is promising then in these words is that he will take his rightful place on the throne. He will rule with justice and righteousness, with grace and with mercy. And under his gracious and merciful and generous rule, all things would be made new. Everything will be the way it's supposed to be. And this is our driving hope. God's generosity, we see, also brings life. In chapter 25, verses 7 and 8, God says he'll destroy the shroud of death that is over all people. He'll swallow death completely, making it no longer a factor. And in verse 9, we see people saying that because God will do this, they will rejoice in his salvation, having life in eternity and full and abundant life today. They can do that. They can trust in that because death won't be a factor any longer. It won't have the final say. Death will be and has been defeated by God. And then thirdly, what we see about God's generosity is that it's for all people. Two weeks ago, um, the high school mission team was commissioned in the 845 service to go to Philadelphia to serve for a week. And it was a wonderful privilege to be with those students. We did a lot of work um, working against food insecurity, where people um, are in a situation where they don't know maybe where their next meal is going to come from or where they may get nutritious food. And so we did a lot of work in community gardens while we were in the Philadelphia area. For whatever reason, in the Philly area, produce is exceptionally difficult to come by. Uh, it doesn't matter where you, where you live or um, how much money you make, produce is just hard to find. There are areas in Philly called food deserts where within a certain radius, you just can't get particular types of food. And produce is one of those things. In fact, there was one of the areas we worked in where they hadn't had a grocery store in over 30 years. Now, can you imagine that? We've got grocery stores within just a few miles of where we're sitting right now. They haven't had one in 30 years. So getting nutritious and healthy food for so many people was a very difficult challenge. But there were these community gardens that accepted or that went to food banks and gave their produce free of charge to these food banks to then distribute to anyone who had need. It didn't matter your W-2, it didn't matter where you lived, it didn't matter what kind of resources you had. If you needed this produce, if you wanted this produce, it was there for you. Anyone could partake of it. Now, it was obvious in where we worked and, and who we worked with and for that many of these community gardens were intended to help those who did not have economic means for the poor. 
they had the most difficult time getting healthy produce, or any produce for that matter, and they were welcome to take from these gardens. And in chapter 55 of Isaiah, in verses 1 through 3, we see God reaching out to the thirsty and to the poor, those who are in dire straits, those who are in great need, but have nothing to bring to give an exchange for the goods that they would receive. This, of course, does mean the economically poor. It also means the spiritually poor. Those of us who recognize our falling short of what's needed to participate in God's great banquet. Many of us here, I would even venture to say most of us here are, are not economically poor. We can afford good food. As I said, we've got grocery stores with just, within just a few miles of us. But on our own, we are all spiritually poor. There is nothing that we can bring to the table that would cause God to say, yes, come on in. Except for his generosity and giving us grace to come to, the place, come to our place at the banquet table. God graciously and generously reaches out to the thirsty and to the poor, ask, giving him, asking us to partake in the banquet of his grace. And this just scratches the surface of God's generosity. We could go on and on about how generous and gracious God is. And many of us agree with that, that God is a generous God, right? We have probably even experienced it in some way, shape, or form in our lives. And yet, all of us probably need to acknowledge that we don't always see God's generosity. We probably even to acknowledge there are times where we straight up reject God's generosity. And those things keep us from experiencing it more fully. One of my um, not proudest moments in high school uh, came my junior year. Uh, a friend of mine very casually came up to me uh, while I was at my locker and she asked me if I wanted to go to prom with her. I promptly replied, no. Yeah, there was a gasp. I heard somebody gasp. Yes, that's um, not my proudest moment. I was not the most popular person in my friend group um, at that moment. And if I had been in her shoes, and maybe you're, you can relate to this um, as well, if you were in her shoes, there was no way that I would extend another invitation having been rejected that way, right? We can understand why my friend would not ask me to go to prom with her again. That makes sense. There was no reason for her to extend a second invitation. Thankfully, though, God is not like us. He continues to reach out to us. He asks us to come to a wonderful and generous feast over and over and over again. In English, the word come in chapter 55 in the first three verses is used four times, showing us that God repeatedly asks us again and again and again and again. But why does he ask so many times? Why does he even want to ask so many times? He wants to ask because he is passionate about having us come to his great banquet. He wants us to be there because of his great love for us. And he has to ask so many times because he knows that we don't often hear this invitation. We don't often listen to it or for it. We don't often respond right away to it. And so he knows we need multiple reminders to come to the feast that he's provided for us. He reaches out so many times because he knows we tend to reject his generosity. And we may reject it for different reasons. One reason might be we don't feel like we're good enough to receive this, 
this invitation, that we don't have the spiritual credit that's required to receive the invite. But we see that God clearly says that those with no money, that those with no credit can come to the banquet. He wants those who are physically poor and spiritually poor to enjoy his feast. That's who the banquet's for. None of us on our own have the ability, have the credit to earn our way in. In fact, each time we reject God's invitation to us, we decrease our credit and increase our debt. But by God's generous grace, he reaches out again and again. Maybe that's you. Maybe you feel that you're not good enough. You don't have the credit. God is inviting you in. For me, as I thought through this, I think verse two really gets to where I find myself when it comes to not hearing or accepting and even rejecting God's generous outreach. And maybe, maybe you are like me in this. Verse two talks about going to food that doesn't satisfy, spending money that, on things that will never ultimately satisfy us. Money on what's not bread, labor that falls short. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis's famous quote, we're more content making mud pies in the mud than accepting a vacation at the sea. We think that what we have here, our money, our comfort, our success, our appearance, whatever it might be, that those things will ultimately satisfy us, that those things will quench our thirst, that they'll, they'll end our hunger, they'll fulfill our deepest desires, when in reality, only God can do that. And God knows this about us as a group. He knows this about us as individuals. And he still reaches out to us, no matter how many times we've rejected him. He reaches out even though we're rejecting him for much lesser gods, for idols of our time, things that we've made more important than God. And what's so hard about this is we may not even realize that we're doing it because our idols are so often really good things. Now, if you're not sure what your idol might be, or even if you have any, this is something that I found helpful uh, when, when I try to deal with idols in, in my life from time to time. It's often uncomfortable, but it's, it's worth doing. How will you finish this sentence? My life would be full if only I had blank. Whatever it is you used to fill in that blank, that could be an idol in your life. And again, it could be a good thing. It could be success at work, at school, wherever, good grades, good reputation, just to name a few things. All of those things are good. But when they move too far into our heart, when they take the throne that is meant only for God, they have become an idol. And they'll push us beyond our limits because they'll never really satisfy us. We won't get the satisfaction we're seeking from our idols and we'll just keep going and going and going. They push us beyond our limits. What idols are is spiritual junk food. And the truth is, idols don't feed us. They feed on us. Yet God in his generosity does the exact opposite. He feeds us with his grace. He nourishes us with his presence. He's given us grace that we don't have to pay for, yet it cost him dearly. It cost God the life of his son to buy us back from our idolatry, from our sin. It cost Jesus everything so that we could pay nothing to have full and abundant life in him, to have hope and to have joy and to have more than we can possibly imagine. This is the greatest act of generosity. 
This is the act of God giving all of himself, giving us his son at no cost to us, at great cost to him. And we can celebrate at the great banquet of the king because of God's free and costly grace given to us through Jesus Christ. So it's clear that God is generous. And because he is, there's this expectation that we'd be generous as well. So how do we respond to God's free and costly grace, to his great generosity? Well, it begins with recognizing the idols in our lives, to get them back into their proper place. They might be good things, so they belong in our lives, just not at the center of our hearts. And so that thing or or whatever it was that you used to fill in the blank at the end of that sentence, a step you can take, and I would challenge you to do this, is tell someone you trust what you use to fill in that blank. Maybe it's an accountability partner. Maybe it's a trusted friend, someone in a Bible study that you're in or a small group. Maybe it's your spouse. Tell them what came to mind when you filled in that blank. And if you need to write their name down so you'll remember to do it, go ahead and write their name down. Heck, take out your phones and text up that person that, you came to mind, that came to mind and just say, I have something that happened at church I have to tell you about. It will hold you accountable and it will be intriguing, especially if you word it that way. But I don't want us to miss the point. We need to tell someone what that idol might be. That is the first step that we can take. And once we see these idols, we can take more steps to get rid of them. If it was money and comfort, we might need to give away a little more money. If it's getting good grades, if that was an idol, and I know we're in the summer, but it's still something that students think about all year. Take a portion of the time that you'd use for studying and tutor a younger student. Each idol that we have takes a different strategy to combat it individually. But we have to take these strategies and use them because idols don't just disappear on their own. They don't disappear over time. They shape us more and more to be like them. But if we take the steps, God will work through the steps we take to rid us of idols. And some of these idols can be removed simply by being more generous. You know the old cliche of we're to give of our time, treasure, and talents? That's a great step to get rid of some of the common idols that all of us may have in some way. When we give of our time, we'll have less time to dedicate to some of the idols in our lives. When we give of our treasure, it loosens the grip that money and possessions have on us. And when we give of our talent for the benefit of others, it can loosen the grip that self-promotion, self-centeredness has in our lives. And look, the only way that this can truly happen is by God's generous outpouring of his spirit into our lives, which he has done. So we can take these steps. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 9 says, The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. God has shared his food with us. He has given us physical food as well as spiritual food, despite our spiritual poverty. He's given us the richest of foods, free of charge, but at great cost to himself. And so in light of this, may we be people who respond to the free and costly grace of God that God's given us through Jesus with humble repentance and a generous spirit. May we do this so that others would see God's generosity in us, in what we say, in what we think, and what we do, so that his name would be praised.
Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for your free and costly grace that you have given us. Lord God, we ask that we would have eyes to see your generosity, that we would have hearts that would be willing to respond to it by being generous ourselves. Lord God, we also ask that you would show us the idols in our lives, that we would, by your spirit, work to get them out of the center of our hearts and into their proper place so that you may sit on the throne of our lives, that we would live our lives in joy and freedom and in service to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.